We've had a couple of heroes so far. We have Bezalel, who nobody had ever, had ever heard of, and Moses, who everyone's heard of. And Moses is in that bracket of, um, if you think of heroes in the Bible, if you think of male heroes in the Bible at least, you think Moses, Elijah. If you're in the New Testament, you might think Peter or Paul. If you're thinking of female heroes in the Bible, you'd think maybe Sarah or Rebecca. Um, New Testament, you'd think Mary, mother of Jesus. Um, but I want to look at one of the least likely heroes I think you find in the whole of the Bible, both old and new. I'll put it this way. If you lived next door to a madam of a brothel, if she was your neighbor, if she was a known liar, if, if you knew what she did for a living, the kind of people that came in and out, uh, the kind of people she saw and hung out with, you probably wouldn't think hero. You'd probably think some other stuff. You probably wouldn't think that they were a hero. But this morning, the character I want to look at is someone that says, actually, God can take anyone, God can take anything and transform it into something amazing. Like Even the most far-off people that we think he can make something beautiful out of it. The scene is this. God's people, the Israelites, have left Egypt, so they've gone through uh, the Red Sea, and they've been kind of wandering in the wilderness for some time. Moses has been leading the people. They've been moaning. They've been whinging. And the whole target, the whole purpose is to get to the promised land. That's where they're going. That's the target. It's been set before them. There's this beautiful place that they're going to call home. Moses doesn't make it, and the guy who takes over is a guy called Joshua. And the scene is this, they're at the River Jordan, they're on one side of the river, and as they look up, they can see the promised land. They can see this beautiful place that they're going to inhabit. But there's a few obstacles and a few problems before they can do that, as in there's the enemies of God's people. There's all these people who are inhabiting the land that actually are a bit in the way. Well, how are we supposed to inhabit this beautiful promised land if there's lots of places in front of us? And so Joshua, what he does is he takes a couple of spies to do spy stuff, you know, like corporate espionage and um, skulking about, going into the places. Let's find out the weak points of these cities. Let's find out how we're going to hit them so it hurts so that we can definitely take over these places. And the target is this ancient, formidable city of Jericho, which is like the, the first city that they'll come across, almost like the gateway the gateway to the rest of the promised land. If they can take Jericho, then nothing else will stand in the way. Jericho would be the city to take. If they can take that, nothing else is going to stand in their way. And so you enter our hero. In Joshua chapter 6, we get told about what's happened. The Israelites, if you know the story with the walls of Jericho, have marched around the city six times silently. Wouldn't that have been weird to kind of watch if you think about it? They're kind of marching around silently six times. And on the seventh day, they do it a few times and make some noise. And the walls fall down. A bit miraculous. Not something that happens every day. And then they do their stuff and, you know, take over the city. And this is what we read in verse 24. They burnt the city with fire, everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. So there's this whole city massive city full of people who are the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people. And yet this woman here gets a mention that she's been saved alive. Everything else has been devoted to destruction, but Rahab has been saved. So the question is, well, what's so special about her compared to everybody else? Is there anything special about Rahab versus everybody else that's in that city? This is Joshua 2. I just want to read it. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from, I don't know how you say this without it sounding rude, Shittim, as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Unless it's a silent S. Uh, And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they're from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she brought them up on the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So two spies enter Jericho on business to try and work out how we can take this city. And so they go to a place where they think, we'll blend in. We'll kind of, no one will know we're there. I know, we'll go to Rahab's place. Now, Rahab's place is either her home or most people think actually she ran a brothel. So she would be the madam. She would be the one who's running it out of her home. So they go there, you know, they blend in. Lots of travelers would visit that kind of uh, lovely seedy establishment that uh, these two spies went in. But the spies haven't gone for any of that. They've gone with noble kind of means, and they've gone to find out about the weaknesses of the city. So these two spies are shacking up at Rahab's. But they're obviously not very good spies because the king of Jericho knows they're there. So straight away, they're not James Bond, are they? They've been there. I don't know how long they've been there. But the king of Jericho knows they're there and knows who they are and knows why they've come. So the king sends his troops to the door and Rahab is faced with a dilemma straight away. Now, you would think, actually, given the circumstance, it's not a dilemma at all. But the fact that she chooses a different path means that it must have been a bit of a dilemma in her mind. If she turns the two men over, which you would expect her to do as a citizen of Jericho, she might be rewarded. She might go down as famous Rahab who helped defeat Israel. She might go up in the king's book. She might get, she might get a bigger establishment. She might get more business. There have been lots of pros, seemingly, for Rahab's way of life and her lifestyle to just hand over the men. It seems a bit of a no-brainer for her. But instead, she doesn't do that. She hides them so that these two foreign spies aren't discovered. And when she's doing that, I hope we realize she's committing treason against Jericho. She's committing treason against her king, against her country, against her people, against her family even. She's taking a massive risk. If she's found out, if they, incidentally, they're a bit rubbish, these king's guards. They don't bash the door down and go in to check either. Have you noticed that? They just ask her and expect her to tell the truth. Anyway, they stand at the door. She says they're not there, even though they are. She risks her life. She risks everything in order to protect these two men that she's just met. And she actually lies to uh, the guys that have been sent from Jericho. She she says four lies. It's not like she says it as an accident. She does four things. She says she doesn't know who who they are. Well, she blatantly does know who they are. She says she doesn't know where they've gone. Well, they're on a roof. She says, if you quickly go now, you'll catch them. Well, no, they won't. And, and they says, you've got to go because the door's going to shut. And actually, they're hiding on the roof the whole time. 
She's sold them. <laughs> They've gone. Uh, she's obviously quite convincing in what she was saying. But she knows who they are and what they're doing. And obviously lying is not something that I'm going to stand here and kind of uphold as something that we're to be doing. Ten Commandments says don't do it. But there's a kind of great, a good moral argument going on here. And I'll talk about it maybe in person with you. I don't really want to kind of get distracted by it this morning, the morality of whether what she did was right or wrong. Because if she hadn't told that lie, then the men would have got it, wouldn't they? So there's a bit of a moral dilemma going on there. But that's for another day. That's for a rainy day. Uh, in order to take this risk, though, um, it, it would make no sense, r- really, for her if she didn't know anything of who these men were or what they were doing. And this is what we read from verse 8, because we find out from verse 8 that actually she's heard something. Before the men lay down, so the soldiers have gone off now. They've gone on a wild goose chase to find people that they're not going to find. Before the men lay down, so they've not gone to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Word had reached Canaan, Israel were coming. They'd heard about the sea being split. Now you would, wouldn't you? You would think. If there was some, you know, amazing, um, what's a local river? I think of the River Hippo. It's not really a river, is it? It's like a trickle through Somersault. Um, if the Thames, right, started splitting and people were walking through it, we would hope it would make news right? You would imagine you'd hear about it because it's supernatural. It's amazing. Well, word had reached Canaan that a sea had split and that God's people had come through it, that signs and wonders were taking place, that there was a group of people, but there was something miraculous about them. There was something different about them. They went into battle with people and they won. Even if the odds were against them, they were winning. And the fear of this group of people has spread across the whole land. This fortified city, Jericho, is melting away with fear even before they arrive. And she says to the spies, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land. You could argue she's just hedging a bet. But you could also argue that she's heard something of God and said, that's something I want in on. The fear of you has fallen upon us. It's a bold statement for uh, A woman who's running prostitution out of her own house to say, I know of this God that you're talking of. I've heard about him and I want in with that. It's a really bold statement for her to protect these spies. And it's not a case of she's heard about something and it's gone one one ear and out the other, which is often what happens to us. But she's heard about it and she's acted upon it. Um, She lets them out through the window. So they go back and they report the news to Joshua that this is what Jericho's like. And they actually say there is this prostitute called Rahab who, who spared us and helped us. And we've made an agreement with her that when we raid the city, we'll protect her. And all she has to do is hang out this scarlet ribbon outside of her window. And anyone that's inside her home would be protected. And that's just what happens. And so I've just got three, I've written three or four things because I can't remember how many I've got. Three or four just really quick fire things, just kind of looking at what Rahab does and why and what kind of faith she has actually. And something I think that we can learn from this amazing woman. In the book of James in the New Testament, 
Uh, he spends a lot of time talking about a faith without works is dead. A faith that doesn't lead to action is worthless. That if we have this amazing news that we know this God who's changed our life and transformed our life, but we do nothing with it, then what is that? That's the point that James is, is making here. And what we see in Rahab is a faith that leads to action. It's a faith that changes circumstance. Um, in this moment, she hears of what God has done and she acts upon that. She acts upon the fact that there's a God who's performing the miraculous and it shapes her decision making. It shapes the fact that she says to these uh, soldiers of Jericho, no, they're not here. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they've gone. Maybe you should go out of the door now and see if you can find them. That's all because she's heard of something. And actually, she's made seemingly a frankly ridiculous decision in the heat of the moment to save some spies that she doesn't know. But what she's saying is, I don't count my life, my future earnings, my, almost my prosperity, uh, my family, my future as as valuable as this God that I've heard of. That there's something greater about this God that she's heard of than anything she currently possesses. Anything that she might have or anything that Jericho may offer her. And I suppose the question that just rings in the back of my head when I think of that is, with what we know of God, with what you have heard of God, are you faithful with that? Are you faithful with what you know of him in communicating that, in living a way that pleases him based on what we know of him, what we've heard of who he is and what he's done? Her faith means she acts, she homes the spies. What does our faith lead to? What does our faith give shape to in Chesterfield or where we're from if we're visiting today? What action is birthed out of our faith? Or do we just turn up at church on a Sunday and that's it? It should lead to like a dynamic change, shouldn't it, in the world that we live in, in the people that we're rubbing shoulders with, in the people that we're meeting. And just real lately, I think, as a church, um, we talk about it a lot, you know, being a blessing to the poor and, and loving people. And actually, we just need to get on with it, don't we? But it's not just for one person to get on with it. It's for all of us. It's a faith that leads to action, as to loving people, blessing people, being there for people, showing them the love of God to be in the world but not of it. To be salt and light, we're not really demonstrating the light of God and the salt of God if we're kind of in holy huddles, are we? We don't achieve a great deal, but Rahab here, even though she knew a tiny bit of God, we probably know much more of the God that she knows of, yet she does an amazing thing, doesn't she? So even with the little that we have, if we feel we know a little of God because he's just infinite and so massive and sometimes difficult to understand what he's like, even with that, what are we doing with it? This is what I find interesting from Rahab. This is what she says. I've heard how the Lord dried up the water. I've heard how the Lord helped you in battle against the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. As soon as we heard it, our hearts were melted because the Lord your God is there, God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I love that she almost has a supernatural faith, that she knows a little bit, a little bit. She's got a smidgen, she's got a tiny window, but she believes. We don't see in the dialogue here, because we don't know a great deal about Rahab, but we don't see her say, right, spies, before I house you, and before I look after you, I'd just like some finer details on what happened at the Red Sea, please. Did Moses really have a staff? Did he really go, and the sea parted? Did the chariots really come after you? 
We don't get this kind of interaction where she's saying, yeah, but this, but this, or, you know, when you went to battle, were you sneaky? Did you, you know, get them at night time or something? Because your army's much smaller than them. Like, how did you do that? She's not drilling down into the details. She's not playing 20 questions with the spies. She's saying, I've heard about this God. I've heard he's done great things, and I want in. Sometimes we spend so long sitting on the fence with our faith leading to action because we don't have all the answers. But what if God doesn't want to give us all the answers this side of eternity? Have we thought about that? Maybe scripture has revealed all the answers he wants to give to us this side of eternity. And some things we have to live with the tension of we don't quite know. Like people that will stand at the, well, they won't stand here at the front because we wouldn't let them. But people that will stand here at the front and say, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, look busy. How do they know that? When Jesus himself says, I don't know the times, only the Father does. Like, we've just got the scriptures revealed things to us. And with what we know of God, we've got to have a supernatural faith that just goes for it. She faces a choice, Rahab, a choice that we all face, that you get a glimpse of what God's like, the the greatness of God. And before that, you feel unworthy and you feel low and you think, well, how could God love someone like me? Can you imagine Rahab kind of playing that over in her mind? I'm sure she did as she's taking this risk. Well, here's a God who's, you know, done miraculous things and brought people out of slavery and into freedom. And here I am operating my business in this city. She faces a choice. The question is, will she be defined by her history or will she be defined by God's? Will she look at God's story or will she just sit on her own? And sometimes we sit on our own story to the detriment of God's. That we spend so long facing on our unworthiness and our wretchedness that we forget to look up. That we forget to go, wow, God. Our faith has to be based on the greatness of God. It has to be based on how awesome God is, how transformative he is, how he can bring life even into the most dark situations. That The sick can be healed, not because we've got super skills, but because God's good. That the dead can be raised because God's good. That the deaf can hear, that people that are walking in darkness can walk in light. It's because of who God is. Consider Rahab. Her own history is stacked against her, isn't it? For a start, she's born a Canaanite. She's, she's got the wrong postcode. She's not an Israelite. She's the enemy of God's people. Secondly, her chosen profession, important, isn't it? It's her chosen profession. She could have been a doctor. She could have been a nurse. She could have been a businesswoman. She could have been anything she wanted to be. And, you know, I don't get the impression that it's being imposed upon her by, you know, some sort of Don, but rather she's chosen to operate a business out of her own home. That's what she's chosen to do. Third, she's a liar. Obviously quite a good one as well because she sold them hook, line, and sinker. And fourth, you know a name, Rahab. I mean, she's, it's important what we name our kids. I mean, you don't have to go into the massive, you know, you don't have to go into, oh, it means this, so therefore. But, you know, sometimes... I've never met a Rahab. I don't know if anyone else has ever met a Rahab. But her name, I hope we we don't get one. I'm not giving you ideas here because, you know, sometimes we say, oh, and this is what the name means. So like Tyson, his name means firebrand. That's really cool because you can talk about how he can be a firebrand for the Lord. If, you know, if people that are wanting to get pregnant here, please don't do this to us. Rahab literally means pride, insolence, and savagery. Not sure how you turn that around as something positive. 
It would take a great deal of spin. But her history, even her identity, it seems, is stacked against her. She's a savage even by her name. What defines your faith? Is it your own past, your own history, your own shortcomings? Or is it the story of God and what he's done? Pride works in both ways, doesn't it? It says, I'm not good enough or I'm too good. It can work in both ways. It says, oh, I'm not good enough. What we're really doing is saying, God's not good enough. And what we do is we put up barriers that Jesus has destroyed. We keep barriers in our life that Jesus knocks out of the way 2,000 years ago. When we're saying, I'm not good enough, or when we're saying, I'm too good, we're, we're erecting these things that Christ has crushed upon a cross. God's story, God's history has to dictate our present and our future. Because it does for Rahab. She sees something of God and she goes, I want in on that. I want to give myself to something greater. And that's what God's history is what? It's the cross. It's Jesus upon a cross 2,000 years ago stepping into the breach for you and for me. And it's a history that says, I love you. A history says you're valuable, that you're worth something, that I care for you, that I love you, that I want you. It's a call to come home, to stop erecting barriers in our life that keep us from God. And Rahab's faith is in a supernatural God who can transform lives. Even her own, because she knows her shortcomings. Even her own. But she doesn't focus on that as a limiting factor to the grace of God. She doesn't say, oh, well, I'm too much of a mess that I might as well just give in. I'm too much of a wreck. God wouldn't love me. I'm not, I know that's not, I'm reading between the lines there, but I'm not even reading that between the lines. That doesn't seem to come across in the narrative. But instead it's, a, I've heard about this God, this God of the heavens and God of the earth. Yeah, Soul Survivor, um, we just went recently, over 300 kids gave their life to Jesus, which is amazing. And... Um, Mike Pilavachi did some of the teaching and he talked about going to the Grand Canyon and he, he did this for about 20 minutes so I'm not going to do that. But he basically said the first time he went to the Grand Canyon he was like, oh, it's an eight hour drive and it took a long time to get there. But when he got there, it was one of those moments where he just went, wow. Where he went, oh, well, you know, he wanted to turn around, he wanted to give up but when he got there, it was wow. And he said something like he's been like back 10 times now that anyone he goes, whenever he goes to America, it doesn't matter where he's in America, he wants to take them there because it's a, a wow moment. It's something that just captivates him and captivates the people that he goes with. And then he said, we need that but for our God. That's right, isn't it? We need to be wowed by God. We need to be like in awe of who he is and what he's done. Men, if you've got married, you've got that um, awkward weight at the front of church. Anyone who's been married knows what I'm what I'm talking about here where say it's a 12 o'clock wedding and it's five past 12 now and you're starting to kind of think are they coming obviously I've only got limited experience of this um but in my limited experience <laughs> being married once um you're like are they coming are they coming and then there's like this hush and everyone stands up and it's this nerve and you turn around you don't know whether you should turn around or not you don't know whether you should look or not and you turn around it's a bit soppy I'm going to say this though I don't do this very often but you turn around and you go you fill with fear and you go crumbs and then you go wow now shouldn't we be like that with God even more, times those feelings of Grand Canyon or someone that you think is beautiful or whatever it might be and we're saying Wow to God. 
as soon as we're lost in the awesomeness and in the wonder of who God is, our faith responds. That actually, if our God is greater, then our faith is greater. That there's no obstacle. Uh, the Rahabs of this world, if our God is great, no problem. God can transform the Rahabs of this world if our God is that great, can't he? If he can split seas, he can transform my life and transform yours. If he can defeat death, he can do anything. We believe that, don't we? I hope we do. That's like the foundation of all we believe in. <laughs> if we don't believe that, then we're on a road to nowhere. But if he can defeat death, if he can take our sin and our shame and give us new life, if he can move mountains, then he can bring hope into the darkest of situations. The darkest parts of our town, he can shine a light in. But the beauty of it is he uses us to be his hands and feet. And so this morning, if you're in need of a fresh start, in need of answered prayer, in need of hope, don't rely on your past and your history. Rely on God. Rely on his history that says, I love you, that I want you, that I've died for you. And let it inform your present and your future. Keep coming back to Jesus loves me. Jesus has rescued me in the most spectacular way. And as a result of that, and as a result of, I think, Rahab catches a glimpse, obviously not of Christ, but of, of God, and says, I want in on that. And that's what we need to have going from this place and in every day, a faith that's all in. Whatever portion our faith is in, whether we feel we have faith the size of a mountain, or we literally are just clinging on, we've got faith as small as a mustard seed. With whatever level that our faith has been apportioned to us and faith that we have, we have to go all in for Jesus with it. It's not a bit part faith. Rahab, all she had to go on was some wonders that she'd heard about from a third party. She hadn't seen the wonders. She'd just heard about them. And yet she lays her life, her job, her family, her citizenship, her hope, her future, everything on the line, she goes all in. And that's the call of faith, actually, is that we go all in. We can't believe in Jesus. Uh, we can't um, have half measures. Either Jesus is the Christ or he's not. There's no in-between, is there? There's no foot in either camp. It's one or the other. And for Rahab, she had to go all in. We have the opportunity before us, don't we, in our careers, in our workplaces, in what we do with our present and our future, to go all in. Don't we? To be salt and light in all those different places, in all these different ways. We can do that. We can be those people that are actually prepared to lay our career, our lives, our friendship groups, our reputation on the line to serve something that's greater. That's the call of faith, actually, is to live for something that's greater to live for the Lord. And we do it not because it's cool or not because we'll get credibility or we'll see as you know, great voluntary charitable people. But we do it because God loves us. And we do it because he loves the world that we're in. And we're representing him to that world. We've got to be all in because God transforms. I want to put this to you. If Rahab was your next door neighbor, what would you think? What would you do? Would you represent Christ and go and tell her about Jesus? Or would you stand in judgment? Now, only you can answer that question. But it's a very good question, isn't it? 
that says, well, what's our attitude towards the world? Do we really believe that God can transform the lives of people like Rahab? Because we need to. And when we do that, our faith, uh, we have a faith to say that actually God can transform that person too. God doesn't write people off, so we shouldn't either. The fact that he uses Rahab, the woman who probably owns a brothel in Jericho and saves her, and then uses her going forward, is remarkable. You know who, it says this in Hebrews of Rahab, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She gave a friendly welcome so she didn't perish. You know what, Rahab went on to live a life for God, a life that was a transformed life. And you know who Rahab became? It's disputed, but I mean, I believe this is who she was, that she is King David's great-great-grandma. That's who Rahab is. Who's King David? The greatest king in Israel's history. His great-great-grandma is a prostitute from Jericho. I'll just let that sink in. When you read Matthew 1, who's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah? A little someone called Rahab, the prostitute who lived in Jericho. God transforms even the likes of Rahab, who had a faith, who heard something of God and went all in. By faith, it says Rahab did not perish, but she went on to live a life for God. A transformed life that looks at the wonders of God and let that inform the level of faith that she had. They said, this world is not beyond redemption. Those people that you know are not beyond redemption. And Rahab's case in point, isn't she? I was drawn to this psalm this morning. I was just praying. And this is just to finish. This is someone who's in the family tree of Jesus is Rahab. And this psalm, I think, just sums up God's heart, really. It needs to be our heart as well towards people. It says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. He's steadfast in love to all who call upon him. All includes the likes of Rahab.